This is from the prophet Micah in the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are small among the clans of Judah, from you will come for me a ruler for my people Israel, one who is of old, from whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Then Israel will be abandoned until she who is in labor gives birth. And then, and then, he, his brothers will come and join him after this birth. And then he will stand in the strength of the Lord and shepherd his flock. And the people will dwell securely as his greatness goes to all the earth. And he will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I don't know if you saw on the uh, news the other night the story of the guy in Australia who's driving his SUV. And uh, he calls 911. He's panicked because his cruise control is stuck at 65. And so he's hurtling uh, toward obstacles at 65 miles an hour. So the uh, authorities do their best to clear the road ahead of him. And finally they're, finally they're able to divert him along a smaller uh, road. And then with a combination of brake and handbrake uh, and resulting whiplash, he's able finally to stop his car without too much damage. It was good that he survived. But uh, then they said... The 911 call was really his second call. As his car was hurtling along at 65 miles an hour, he first called the dealer and explained to him them that his car was stuck at 65 miles an hour in the cruise control, and the dealer told him, then don't drive it. Have you ever gotten an answer that's about as helpful as that? Well, then just don't drive it. There you are, stuck in the world, hurtling toward obstacles, and you call for help. Sometimes I think we feel that way as God's people. A number of times I'll be in a hospital situation or uh, an intensive care unit and I'll hear people say, where is God? Or I'm losing my faith. I can't see God in this. They're calling out for an answer that's intelligible and helpful and they don't seem to get one. Micah's people faced the same situation. They were hurtling toward a very strong obstacle, the Assyrian army was moving down, and the Assyrians would crush everything in their wake. And if you look uh, in Isaiah 37 and in Second Chronicles, you'll find out that actually the Assyrian army got all the way to the doorstep of Jerusalem, smashing and crushing everything in their wake. And they called out to God for help. And I think they got what they felt like was an answer like, well, then don't drive it. And one wondered who the next call they wanted to make was to. Because they got a very strange and interesting answer from the prophet Micah. And I want to walk through, because at first glance it seems like a strange answer. Help! The Assyrians are about to swallow us up. They're like a wolf. And they're coming to devour us. And the response is, well, you, O Bethlehem, you're a small town, but out of you will come a great ruler. And and his rule, after you're abandoned for a while, will go to the ends of the earth. What kind of answer is that? I thought we might look a little bit at that answer. Because in our hindsight as Christians, we can look back and see how this was a part of an interesting and amazing plan that God has put together. 
So let me break it in two parts. What was Micah's answer uh, from God about their present situation with the Assyrians coming uh, and bearing down their throat? It seems the answer was like this. The first thing I think God was saying and talking about labor was, I know you're in pain. I know that you're in pain. Now, fortunately, I don't firsthand understand the pain of labor, but three times I've been close enough to get a reflection. And I know that that is real pain. But God is, first of all, telling us, I know your pain. God says uh, through the Psalms that he takes our tears and puts them in a bottle. Another time in the Psalms it says that God records all of our tears. And then finally in Revelation we're promised that God will wipe away every tear. But the main point is God knows we're crying. So the first answer God has to the people of Micah's day, and I think to our day is, I know you're in pain. I know it. Now the second answer we may not particularly like, but if you read all the way through the five, for these five chapters in Micah, uh, and then, of course, get to the great and famous uh, chapter 6, which we'll hit another day. But one of the things God's telling them is, you're in trouble because you have trusted in other gods. You're in trouble because you forgot about me. You're in trouble because you neglected the poor. You're in trouble because you oppressed people. You're in trouble, it's inferred, because you sacrificed your children to false gods. So basically the answer God's given him is part of the problem here is your own sin. It's interesting when I'm in uh, serious situations, I, I sometimes will hear people say, where's God? What, what is God going to do for me? But I've never heard people stop and ask, now what all sorts of things has God done for me in the past? Nobody ever stops to recount the goodness of God when they're in a moment of crisis. And they certainly never ask the question, what have I done to contribute to this? And Micah's answer is, part of the problem was your sin and the sin of other people. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us have fallen short of what God wanted. It reminds me of that great cartoon a few years ago. There's a man getting ready to go pray. And as he walks in and gets ready to pray, his wife looks at him and, and gives him this warning. Now, Harold, whatever you do, don't ask for what you deserve. And that's the truth of the matter. We actually, in life, have more. Than we deserve. But that was the message from Micah is, well, it was your sin, the sin of others, but, but there was a cause. And then lastly, uh, Micah tells them about the present. Not only, uh, not only do I know your pain, you help to bring on your pain, but you can read behind the lines in Micah and God's hinting, and there's a purpose in your pain. Something good will come from this. And that leads us then to what Micah wants to say about the future. And Micah's got about a couple things to say about the future. And the first one is this. The future that you want is not going to come on your timetable. Micah says that you are going to be abandoned until she who's in labor gives birth. In other words, it's going to be a while. God is not going to answer your issues on your timetable. Which doesn't mean that God's not going to answer in a way that is best for you. And for God's world, it just means that God's not going to answer in a way maybe that you pick up and, uh, and discern on the way that you want it. Because so often we pray to God and basically say, we need this answer by December 22nd, if you don't mind. But God, who has all of the past, 
the present and the future, they're all one to God, all before God. God sees such a bigger picture than we see. We can't see the ramifications of the things for which we are asking. We can't see how they will play out in the next five minutes, much less the next five years. But God who sees is able to answer in ways that are a part of God's timing, even if they don't seem timely to us. So the first part of the thing that Micah wants to say about the future is, God's going to get to it. But it may not be as quickly as you would like. One of the things I think we often do as Christians is we draw judgments and conclusions much too quickly. And we rule God out of a situation or rule hope out of a situation when it doesn't meet our timetable. We're a little bit like, remember the Chicago Tribune, perhaps some of you lived through it or you read about it in the history books in 1948. Not all the votes are in, but they're pretty sure that Dewey has defeated Truman and that's their headline. And God, I think, is trying to say through Micah, there's some pretty important precincts that haven't come in yet. You haven't counted all the votes. God still has something to say. And when God says it, it will turn everything. But the time may not be in your timetable. And then Micah goes on to say, now when God acts, God's going to act through Bethlehem. That must have been a bizarre response. That must have been very similar to them, like, well, don't drive it. They're like, what's Bethlehem? It's a hamlet. It's just a small village a few miles from Jerusalem, but no significance other than the fact that King David was born there and once spent part of his childhood there. That's it. And yet God says, that's the part of the answer that I have for you. That's a part of my plan. And I think God was just telling them, I'm going to answer in a way that's going to surprise you. And God often does. I think I get in trouble in my life when I expect God to answer not only on my timetable, but in a certain way. God, if you're God, you will make these things happen. And you'll make them happen by this time. And I come with expectations, and often I'll admit to you, those expectations are met with disappointment. But when I come to God, instead of with expectations, but with expectancy, and I say, God, I trust you. I know you, and I know in your time and in your way, you are going to answer this in ways that I can't even imagine. And I just leave the door wide open for you to act however you want. And I'm going to trust you to do this. When I've done that, I can't tell you of a time when I have been disappointed. It's been when I've given God a timetable and a specific way that God has to act that I get disappointed. But when I open the door and let God work through Bethlehem then God moves in amazing ways. And finally, God tells them about the future. And this ruler who's going to come is going to be known to the ends of the earth. In other words, God says, I'm going to give you even more than you're asking for. You're just asking to be free of the Assyrians. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to send you one who will rule the entire world. And as we know, will rule the entire world forever. God's answer is always so much larger than our questions. Paul knew this. Paul told the Corinthians, what we suffer now is a momentary affliction uh, compared with what God is going to do. He told the Romans almost the same thing in Romans 8. He said, uh, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing with the glory that God has yet to reveal to us. God's going to do something. And it may not be on your timetable. It may not be the way you do it. But when God does it, it's going to be bigger than you even imagined. So what do you do? Here you go. 65 miles an hour. Obstacles coming to you. What do you do? I think Micah's answer is this in two words. 
Hold on. Don't let go of the steering wheel. Don't give up. Hang in there because God is moving even now in ways you can't see. See, the problem is we understand maybe labor pain, but we can tell generally when people are pregnant. And I know there's always the show on the Learning Channel, I didn't know I was pregnant and that kind of stuff. But basically, we know. But the pregnancy with God's promise is something that's so much harder to see and to touch. And oftentimes we don't realize that God's answer is just around the corner, but we can't see it. The rabbis talk about Abraham. Remember, Abraham has to take his child on a 3 J journey and sacrifice him, his one and only child. So he's walking up the side of Mount Moriah. And the rabbis say, though it's not in the scriptures, but on the other side, unseen to Abraham, is the ram that will get caught in the thicket that Abraham will then sacrifice instead of his son. The answer's there, just on the other side. But at this moment, he can't see it. Hold on. Labor gives birth to new life, and it's there, whether we see it or not. I once heard this definition of courage. Courage is fear holding on for just another minute. Hold on a little longer, because the God that you're calling on will act. Maybe not in ways that you expect or on your timetable, but God will act. story is told, I assume it's true, some years ago, 1985, a um, uh, president of a large seminary or theological consortium uh, visited Soviet Union to see the state of Christian churches in Soviet Union. And he came back and reported the dismal news to his seminary. And he said, the church in the Soviet Union is nothing it's nothing. It's just a bunch of old women praying. Four years later, the walls come tumbling down. And one of his faculty members knocks on the door of the president's office and reminds him of this news and says to the president, beware of old women praying. God is moving in ways that they couldn't see and the seminary president couldn't see. But God was moving nonetheless. Elie Wiesel tells us the great story in the concentration camp of when they decided to put God on trial. So they divided among the Jews into two sides. There was a prosecuting side, and they would prove all the times that God had neglected his people and seemed to ignore their pain as, as they struggled worse and worse and faced, and faced almost certain death in the concentration camp. The other side would defend the honor, the name, and the love of God. So they divided and they started the trial. They started the debate. And it was obvious that the side against God caring for them was winning overwhelmingly. And as this argument was going on, suddenly the rabbi in charge of the whole thing stood up and said, Gentlemen, it's time to stop now. It's time for our prayers. And they all went off to pray. I think the rabbi was saying, I know it looks bad. And I know things in the near term may even get worse. But my advice to you is, hold on. Hold on. 